You're listening to the SSPX Podcast as we continue with Parish Mission 2020 by reliving the parish mission as it was delivered by Father Stephen McDonald at St. Isidore's Priory in Denver, Colorado back in 2016. On this second night of the parish mission, Father McDonald continues the theme of participation in our own salvation using St. Paul as an example. Tonight's theme is putting on the new man that is truly living a life of real contrition and being dead to sin. If you'd like more resources, more audio lectures, please visit sspxpodcast.com. And if you would like to receive the next episode, the next parish mission night uh, tomorrow evening, you're welcome to subscribe to the SSPX podcast. Just search SSPX in any podcast app or program, and you'll automatically get these episodes as they are released. For now, let's turn to Father McDonald at St. Isidore's Priory back in 2016. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Dear faithful, last night we spoke of the new Adam's victory over sin. St. Paul comparing the, the old Adam, the first man, to the new Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord, of course, has given us the example. He leads the way. And yet it is up to us to follow his example. It is up to us to share in his victory. Which means, of course, that we must live a life of true contrition for our sins. We must live a life of conversion of heart. Literally, our entire lives now must be redirected toward our Lord, away from creatures, away from sin, away from anything that would distract us from our Lord. Our life is meant to be a life of true and profound conversion. And just as St. Paul compares and contrasts the old Adam with the new, So St. Paul also compares and contrasts the old man with the new man in each one of us. And for St. Paul, it's very clear the key to our sanctification, the key to this life of conversion, is putting off the old man of sin and putting on the new man, a man of grace, a man of virtue, a man of Christ-like quality. We read in the epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 4. This, therefore, I say and testify in the Lord, that henceforward you are not to walk as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding clouded in darkness, estranged from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. For they have given themselves up in despair to sensuality, greedily practicing every kind of uncleanness. But you have not so learned Christ, for surely you have heard of him and have been taught in him as truth is in Jesus, that as regards your former manner of life, you are to put off the old man, which is being corrupted through its deceptive lusts, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which has been created according to God in justice and holiness of truth. This whole putting off of the old man and putting on the new means that we are literally to die to sin, not just casually avoid sin, but literally die to sin, to so detest sin, to so fear sin, that we die to the old ways, the old bad habits, the old sinful inclinations, the old occasions of sin. And now we begin to live a life for Christ, in Christ, and with Christ. 
Again, I quote St. Paul, this time from his epistle to the Romans. What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. For how shall we who are dead to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? For we were buried with him by means of baptism into death, in order that just as Christ has arisen from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall be so in the likeness of his resurrection also. For we know that our old self has been crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be destroyed, that we may no longer be slaves to sin. For he who is dead is acquitted of sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live together with Christ. For we know that Christ, having risen from the dead, dies now no more. Death shall no longer have dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives unto God. Thus do you consider yourselves also as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What we're speaking of here, my dear friends, is a real conversion. Not a superficial conversion. Not the half-hearted conversion that we have so often engaged in with the starts and the stops, with the efforts and then the lethargy. What our Lord is calling to us, or calling us to, I should say, is a real conversion, a profound conversion, one that lasts, one that is based on Christ himself, one that is that has its stability in the example of Christ. We are not to be reeds shaken with the wind, as our Lord once compared those who were in contrast to St. John the Baptist. No, we are to be truly and profoundly converted, which of course means that it takes effort. Each one of us, here and now, if we're going to admit that we are in need of conversion, we are also to admit that we must put forth effort, that we must pay the price in order to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. That we must, as St. Paul says, strive for the reward, actually earn the reward. He says in his first epistle to the Corinthians, Do you not know that those who run in a race shall indeed run, but one receives the prize? So run as to obtain it. And everyone in a contest abstains from all things, and they indeed to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. I therefore so run as not without a purpose. I so fight as not beating the air, but I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps after preaching to others, I myself should be rejected." What St. Paul is telling us, my dear friends, is to live this life of conversion, for it to be profound, for it to be lasting, for it to be truly a conversion of the heart. We must be willing to live a life of penance. We must be willing to live a life of sacrifice. We must be willing to live a life of renouncement, to renounce ourself and our own selfish desires, to renounce all those things that stand in the way of our Lord Jesus Christ, to literally be willing to give up whatever our Lord asks from us 
if we hope to gain this eternal reward in heaven. The ancient Greek fathers used to use a term for this conversion of heart. They referred to it as a metanoia, which literally means a turning of the heart. Literally, a redirecting of the heart away from sin, away from self, away from all our, our, our own desires, and a turning our heart to Christ, a turning of our whole being to Christ. That's a real conversion. That's the conversion that our Lord calls us to. That's the conversion that our Lord desires from us. A complete and absolute reorientation of our whole being, our heart, our mind, our soul, our body, everything that we possess. A turning toward Christ so that everything we do, everything we have, everything we desire is directed toward Christ. And our Lord is never absent from anything that we engage in. Our Lord is never absent. He is never far from our thoughts. That's the conversion that our Lord is calling us to. It is a complete conversion to Christ. Remember what St. Paul tells us, for to me to live is Christ. And if I do not have Christ, then I am not really living. Life is meaningless. Life is empty if our Lord is not everything to me. Again, we cannot be half-hearted in the following of Christ. If our Lord is not everything to us, then our life is empty. Our life is meaningless. Our life is not Christian. Our Lord must be everything to us. Which means, of course, that we must abandon all that is not Christ. We must leave behind all that is not of Christ. St. Paul says in his epistle to the Philippians, But the things that were gained to me, these for the, for the, the sake of Christ I have counted loss. Nay more, I count everything loss because of the excelling knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as dung, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a justice of my own, which is from the law, but that which is from faith in Christ, the justice from God based upon faith. He then goes on to say, Not that I have already obtained this, or already have been made perfect, but I press on hoping that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not consider that I have laid hold of it already, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I strain forward to which is before. I press on towards the goal to the prize of God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. St. Paul is reminding us that even though we have not yet attained this level of perfection, this level of conversion, we must always press toward that mark. That should always be the goal. And that's why every day of our life, we should be converting. Every day of our life should see some sort of conversion in our hearts, that we are turning more and more toward our Lord, that we are more Christ-like than we were the day before, that we care more about the things of God now than we did the day before. Every day should see a conversion of heart, should see us draw closer and closer and closer to Christ. We should be determined to give up anything that stands in the way. 
And sometimes there are obstacles to our perfection that perhaps we do not even see. Obstacles that keep us from this true conversion, this true perfection, even though we may be a seemingly good person. We think of the rich young man in the Gospels who one day comes to our Lord and he says, Master, what must I do to gain eternal life? And our Lord looks at him and says, You know the commandments. Do not steal. Do not defraud your neighbor. Do not commit adultery. I have done all of these from my youth. What is lacking in me? And it says that our Lord looks upon the young man, and what's more, our Lord loves him. This is a good young man. But our Lord looks upon him, and you get the sense that our Lord penetrates his soul. He reads his soul. And then he tells him, you know, there is one thing lacking in you. You have much wealth, many possessions, and you're too attached to them. You want to come follow me? Go sell everything that you have. Give to the poor, and then you follow me. And what does the gospel say? What does this rich young man do? This good young man do? It says he goes away sad. And we do not know if he ever actually did begin following our Lord. He was too attached. An otherwise good young man was too attached to the things of this world. They were an obstacle to his perfection. And so he chose to walk away from our Lord, despite the opportunity to follow him so closely. We, on the other hand, must press toward the mark. We must desire God. We must be determined to serve God. This conversion to Christ then means that we must be willing to take on sin. We spoke of our Lord's temptations in the desert last night. Just as our Lord confronted the devil, just as our Lord overcame his temptations, we too must be willing to take on sin, to overcome our temptations, to overcome sin. And we look to our Lord's example for our model. Our Lord himself tells us, Learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart. Our conversion to Christ then must begin firstly with a great spirit of contrition for our sins. What is contrition? It is an abiding sorrow for sin. Not just a fleeting sorrow. Not just a momentary recognition that we have screwed up. That we have offended God. That we have done wrong. But an abiding sorrow like King David of old who would say, my sin is always before my eyes. True contrition means that we hate sin, we detest sin above all other things, and that if we truly love Christ and if we truly want to serve Christ, we will avoid sin at all costs. But what's more, this true conversion, which begins with contrition for sin, a detestment of sin, must naturally lead, secondly, to a positive seeking after God, a positive practice of the life of virtue. It is not enough for us to simply avoid occasions of sin. It is not enough for us simply to avoid sin, that somehow we're going to live a life of holiness by just avoiding hell, by just avoiding sin. We must also positively work at the life of virtue, we must grow daily in charity, in faith, in hope, in prudence, in justice, 
in temperance, in fortitude, all of the virtues, we must constantly seek to grow in them. We must fill our heart and our soul with the love of God, which means we think about God. We contemplate God. We desire God. He is everything to us. And because he is everything to us, he consumes our thoughts. If we're truly converted to Christ, we don't have room for the nonsense that we used to give ourselves over to. We don't have time for the old man's pursuits. We are a new man, a man of grace, a man of love, a man of charity. We're given a very grave warning in the parable of the man who has a devil cast out of his soul. But because he does not take the pains to fill his soul with virtue, seven more devils come and they set up their abode in this man's soul. And the state of this man's, the first state of this man's soul was better than his last state. He is now worse for wear because he was not careful. We must be willing to take on sin. We must be willing to do battle and overcome sin. The desert fathers of old used to go out into the desert, one, because they wanted to detach themselves from the world, but two, because they saw in the desert a place of battle. It was a place that they could literally take on the devil and overcome sin. It was a place where they could undergo a profound and true conversion in which they could literally leave behind self so that they might seek Christ. They were after a true conversion, not one of appearances, but the real thing. Avoiding all self-deception, but bearing our souls before Christ and following our Lord in the openness of heart, in the trueness of conversion. These desert fathers desired Christ above all things. He was the basis of all that they did so that they might live a life of prayer, a life of union. And my dear friends, we do not have to go out into the desert and live an ascetical life to attain this life of union and prayer. It is possible even in the midst of our daily duties, even in the midst of our daily occupations. There's a beautiful work called The Way of the Pilgrim, written by a 19th century Russian peasant, anonymous to us. But one day he hears in church the reading from St. Paul's epistle in which he says that we must learn to pray always, to pray without ceasing. And this poor peasant was dumbfounded. How can we pray all the time? When we're so busy with everything else that goes on, when we're providing for our families, when we're taking care of our children, when we're engaged in the mundane activities of the world, how can we constantly be praying? And he was so taken by this that he began to search out a wise spiritual guide to, to teach him, how can I pray always? Let me just quote to you from the way of the pilgrim. By the grace of God, I am a Christian. By my deeds, a great sinner. And by my calling, a homeless wanderer of humblest origin, roaming from place to place. My possessions consist of a knapsack with dry crust of bread on my back, and in my bosom, the Holy Bible. This is all. On the 24th Sunday after Pentecost, I came to church to attend the liturgy and entered just as the epistle was being read. 
The reading was from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, which says in part, pray constantly. These words made a deep impression on me, and I started thinking of how it could be possible for a man to pray without ceasing when the practical necessities of life demand so much attention. I checked my Bible and saw with my own eyes exactly what I had heard, that it is necessary to pray continuously, to pray in the Spirit on every possible occasion, in every place to lift up your hands reverently in prayer. I thought and thought about these words, but no understanding came to me. What shall I do, I thought? Where can I find a person who will explain this mystery to me? I will go to the various churches where there are good preachers, and perhaps I shall obtain an explanation from them. And so I went. I heard many very good homilies on prayer, but they were all instructions about prayer in general. What is prayer, the necessity of prayer, and the fruits of prayer? But no one spoke of the way to succeed in prayer. I did hear a sermon on interior prayer and ceaseless prayer, but nothing about attaining that form of prayer. And as much as listening to the public sermons had not given me any satisfaction, I stopped attending them and decided, with the grace of God, to look for an experienced and learned person who would satisfy my ardent desire and explain ceaseless prayer to me. For a long time I traveled through various places. I read the Bible and asked for the whereabouts of a spiritual teacher or a devout and experienced director. After some time, I heard of a nobleman in a certain village who takes his salvation seriously. I was told that he has a chapel in his home and does not go out but spends all his time praying and reading spiritual books. When I heard this, I ran to the mentioned village and sought out this God-fearing landowner. What can I do for you? He asked me. I heard that you are a devout and wise man, and I came in the name of God to ask you to explain to me the meaning of the words of St. Paul pray constantly. How is it possible to pray continuously? I am very eager to know this and cannot in any way comprehend it. The gentleman was silent for a moment. Then he looked at me intently and said, ceaseless interior prayer is a continuous aspiration and a yearning of the spirit of man toward God. To succeed in this sweet exercise, it is necessary to ask God frequently that you teach you to, that he teach you to pray continuously. Pray often and fervently and prayer itself will reveal this mystery to you. How it is possible for it to be continuous, but it does take time. The yearning for God, the desire for God, that is how we will pray continuously. That's what makes every action of our day a prayer. When you go off to work, to a dead-end job, or to some very difficult task, that is a prayer. When you clean your home and you do your laundry, and you clean up after the children, that is a prayer. When you do your homework when you would rather be doing something else, that is a prayer. For a soul that yearns for God, that longs for God, that has truly converted from the very depths of one's heart, everything they do is a prayer. Because it is an aspiration of love, an aspiration toward God, a desire for God. And we become so used to praying, so used to these aspirations, that prayer literally becomes second nature to us. It becomes a part of us. 
Later on, this pilgrim learns the beautiful Jesus prayer, the prayer of the Eastern monks. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is a prayer that the Eastern monks would pray over and over and over again, hundreds and thousands of times a day. And it became such a part of their life that they literally coordinated it with their own breathing. So that every time they inhaled, they would say, Jesus, son of David, they'd exhale, have mercy on me, a sinner. Prayer for us can be that, can become that much second nature if we truly yearn for God. If we truly desire God, everything we do becomes a prayer. And therefore, then we fulfill the words of St. Paul, pray continuously. No matter what we are doing, no matter what mundane, secular task we're engaged in, it can become a prayer if we truly yearn for God, if we are truly converted in the very depths of our hearts. This Jesus prayer, so beautiful, expresses the sentiments of sorrow, the sentiments of hope, of mercy. It is centered on Christ, and that's where our prayer life must go. Our prayer, our union with God, this life of conversion, must lead us to give up all of the things of the old ways, to literally die to self, so that we live a new life, a life lived for and in Christ. The Irish monks of old realized this quite beautifully. These monks who would go out to foreign lands and spread the gospel, who would preach the faith, who would seek to convert the pagans, the barbarians, would voluntarily exile themselves from what they loved most. And what they loved most was their homeland. They loved this country of Ireland. But for them, the greatest sacrifice they could make would be to leave Ireland so that they might spread the faith. They literally became exiles. There's the beautiful story of St. Columkill, who is one of the great saints of Ireland. St. Columkill wanted to do penance for his past sins. And so in his mind, the greatest sacrifice he could make, the greatest penance he could perform, was to leave Ireland, never again to see it so that he might spread the faith to pagan tribes. And so he, with a band of his monks, sets out to the islands of Scotland. And he thinks he finds the perfect place, and so he ascends the highest mountain, and he looks out over the sea, and sure enough, he can still faintly see in the distance his beloved Ireland. And he says, no, this is not a great enough sacrifice. I can still see it. And believe me, he would want to go up and see it every time he could. And so he goes further until finally he settles the monastery of Iona. And he becomes the great apostle to the Scots, the apostle of Scotland. These Irish monks would often refer to the peregrinatio, the journey toward Christ. They would leave behind the old life. For them it was very clear, the old man is done and over with. I have left him behind so that I might live a new life for Christ. A new life which, of course, entailed martyrdom. But not the red martyrdom that we normally think of, the martyrdom that is so outstanding, the martyrdom of the great martyrs of the Catholic Church, St. Stephen, St. Lawrence. What these Irish monks underwent was a a white martyrdom, a daily dying to self, constantly giving up themselves, constantly dying to their own wishes, every day overcoming self, every day being converted to Christ. 
in such a way that they felt it. They felt being drawn closer to Christ, and so they referred to it as the white martyrdom, a death to self, a death to selfishness. Any of us who wish to undergo this conversion must undergo this white martyrdom every day of our life. I die daily, St. Paul tells us. And if we wish to embrace the spirit of St. Paul, then let us die daily. Every day we find ourselves converted. Every day we find ourselves dying to self. Every day we embrace this white martyrdom, this peregrinatio, this journey toward Christ. That's why we can truly say that every day, every action, every moment is a prayer. Because I have embarked on this conversion to Christ, this martyrdom to self. We have, of course, a beautiful example of this in the great figure on Calvary of St. Mary Magdalene, the sinner turned saint. St. Mary Magdalene, of course, was the sister of Lazarus and Martha. She was infamous in the town, though, known as a sinner. Her Her sins were very grave, were very public. But one fateful day, Mary Magdalene hears our Lord preaching, and she hears of forgiveness, of mercy, of love, that even though your sins may be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. And she is moved to a spirit of true contrition, of true repentance. She is ready to give herself over to our Lord. She is willing to be truly converted. And so one fateful day, she barges into the home of a Pharisee when our Lord is at supper with him, and she casts herself at our Lord's feet. We read about this scene in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 7. Now one of the Pharisees asked him to dine with him, so he went into the house of the Pharisee and reclined at table. And behold, a woman in the town who was a sinner, upon learning that he was at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, she began to bathe his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment." Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, This man, were he a prophet, would surely know who and what manner of woman this is, who who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to thee. And he said, Master, speak. A certain moneylender had two debtors, the one owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. As they had no means of paying, he forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, He, I suppose, to whom he forgave more. And he said to him, Thou hast judged rightly. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has bathed my feet with tears, and has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, from the moment she entered, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say to thee, her sins, many as they are, shall be forgiven her, because she has loved much. But he to whom little is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, thy sins are forgiven. And they who were at table with him began to say with themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? But he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee. 
go in peace. The beauty of conversion wins out. The beauty of conversion wipes away a past sinful life. This Pharisee had no conception of what was going on in the depths of Mary Magdalene's heart, but our Lord, of course, did. A lifetime of sin is wiped out in an instant by this spirit of conversion, by this spirit of repentance, by this yearning, this death to self, this yearning for Christ. Fulton Sheen says it very beautifully when he comments on this scene. What did our Lord mean when he said to Simon, do you see this woman? He meant that Simon could not see the woman as she really was, but only as the woman that she used to be, or the woman he thought she was. Simon had said within himself that if our Lord were a prophet, he would know she was a sinner. Now our blessed Lord turned the phrase and asked Simon, do you see her, Simon? The trouble with your tribe of self-righteous people is that you judge yourselves virtuous because you find someone else who is vicious. You never see. You think you see, but you do not. Guilt is always in the neighbor, never in self. Our Lord then went on to describe the common courtesies which had been neglected, but which this woman showed him. She has washed my feet with tears. The garment that is deeply soiled cannot without much rubbing and pouring of water become clean. When there is a deep pollution of sin, there must be, there must not only be a washing, but a soaking and bathing with the tears of contrition. Then she wiped his feet with her hair. In true repentance, there is always a converting of those things which have been abused in the service of sin to the service of God. The best ornament of the body in the judgment of the penitent was not too good to be employed in the most menial service toward our blessed Lord. And then finally, Fulton Sheen goes on to say, Simon had something to learn, so he invited a teacher. The woman had something to be forgiven, so she poured out her contrite tears on the divine creditor, who proved to be her savior. Simon had not denied the existence of guilt, but he felt himself relatively innocent when he saw the woman, who was a sinner. Guilt is not just the breaking of a love, it is the wounding of someone who is loved. The seriousness of sin rises in proportion as Christ is approached. Standing close to the cross and feeling the agonies of him whose death was necessary for sin's atonement could make Paul, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, call himself the greatest of sinners. The lesson was over, and the woman was dismissed with the words, Thy sins are forgiven. See, Mary Magdalene's conversion was a true conversion. Of course, she remains at the foot of the cross. It is a lasting conversion. And Christ rewards Mary Magdalene's faithfulness, her fidelity, by appearing to her first of all after the resurrection, making her a messenger to the apostles. And tradition tells us that Mary Magdalene would spend the rest of her days living in a cave, doing penance for her sins, praying, uniting herself to God, fasting, doing good works. This is the conversion that our Lord is calling us to, a lasting conversion, a perfect conversion, a conversion that turns the sinner into a saint, who makes the old man die, the white martyrdom, so that the new man of life, of grace, of virtue might live, that we might tr continuously pray, that we might continuously make every action that we perform 
a loving prayer to our Heavenly Father. This spirit of conversion, then finally, is most beautifully manifested in the liturgy of Good Friday, the solemn afternoon liturgy. Immediately, when the priest enters the sanctuary, he prostrates himself on the floor, admitting his nothingness, his unworthiness to celebrate these mysteries. He thanks God in a profound spirit of abnegation, understanding that he is unworthy, and yet God has called him to this high office. And then immediately he prays a very beautiful opening prayer. O God, who by the passion of thy Christ, our Lord, has loosened the bonds of death, that heritage of the first sin to which all men of later times did succeed, make us so conform to him that as we must needs have borne the likeness of earthly nature, so we may by sanctification bear the likeness of heavenly grace through the same Christ our Lord. We have been converted. We have been called to a life of conversion. Let us be faithful to that life. Let us embrace it in the mysteries which are about to be celebrated. And of course, the beautiful ceremonies of the Good Friday Liturgy speak of conversion, conversion from sin, conversion to a life of grace. And the vehicle by which we attain this conversion is, of course, the great passion and suffering of our Lord, his death on the cross. And so we go through certain readings, and then we go through the passion of Christ as dictated to us by St. John, an eyewitness of the account. We pray for different uh, groups of people in the solemn prayers, until finally we come to the beautiful ceremony of the unveiling of the cross. The priest processes in with the crucifix, veiled in purple, and three times he unveils a part of the cross until he finally he unveils the entire cross. And each time he says the beautiful words, Behold the wood of the cross on which hung the Savior of the world. And we respond, Come, let us adore. My dear friends, it is the cross which is the sign of our conversion. We cannot ignore the cross. The cross for us is the sign of our salvation. It is the sign of our redemption. It is the sign of our conversion. And this cross calls out to us. Every time we gaze upon the crucifix, it calls out to us to convert, to live the life of Christ, to give up the old ways of sin and live a life of grace. There's a beautiful story, again, Fulton Sheen tells of a sermon that is preached by an archbishop of Paris. And this archbishop is preaching on conversion, on repentance for sin. And he tells the story of three very impious young men, irreligious young men, who one day passing a church decide they're going to just for fun step in. And so they're having a fine old time laughing and giggling and talking amongst themselves. Until finally one of these young men gets the impious idea that he's going to go and stand in line for confession because there's a long line for confession. And as he stands there, mocking the sacrament of penance, gazing back to his comrades, having a fine time, he finally comes to his term and he goes, his turn and he goes in and he makes a bad confession, a fake confession. But in this case, of course, the priest cannot tell that he is being dishonest. And so the priest absolves him and gives him a penance. And so the young man comes out and his friends, having a fine time, laughing their heads off, 
enjoying the scene. Watch him go over to a side altar, because this young man gets the idea, I'm going to finish the whole farce, and I'm going to do my penance. And so he kneels at the side altar, and at that side altar there's a large crucifix. And so he piously pretends to be doing his penance. And he gazes up upon the crucifix, and he sees the nobility, the beauty of our Lord's face. And he sees the bloody wounds. And his conscience is pricked, but he looks down because he will not give in to this. Religion's not for me. And he looks up again, and something within him says, He died for you. He died for your sins. And this is how you're going to treat him. And again, the young man looks down determined not to give in. Until finally he cannot take it anymore. His conscience is so bothering him, he bangs his hand on the kneeler. And he raises his fist to the crucifix and said, You died for me, but I don't care. You died for me. And he stopped. And he immediately broke down and began sobbing. The conversion was complete. Our Lord's grace had touched his heart. The crucifix had called out to him. And this young man immediately ran back into the confessional. And he made a confession of his entire life, sobbing over his sins. And the archbishop finishes this sermon by saying, lest you think that I've made this story up, lest you think that I've used poetic license to drive home a point, I need you to know that I am that young man. I was that young man. And from that moment on, I converted. And from that moment on, I desired to serve Christ. And that desire continually grew into me, grew in me, so that finally I was ordained a priest, consecrated a bishop, and I am the man that you see standing before you now. It's the power of the cross that calls out to us to convert. It's the power of the cross, though, that offers mercy, that offers forgiveness, that offers love. Father Matteo Crawley Bovi, the great proponent of the home enthronement of the Sacred Heart, relates a beautiful story, again regarding a crucifix. There was a church where a great and beautiful crucifix hung right next to the confessional. And one day a young man approaches the confessional, in this case a very good young man, a pious young man, but one who was struggling under the weight of a particular sin. And so he comes and he makes his confession to an old priest, crying real tears of sorrow. And the priest gives him some advice on how to overcome the sin. He absolves him and he sends him away. And very soon after, this poor unfortunate young man again falls into the same sin. And he immediately goes back to the confessional, seeks out the same priest, and he confesses the sin. But this time, this crusty old priest is not quite sure that he's truly sorry. And so after giving him a very stern lecture and a very severe penance, he sends him away, but he says, don't do this again. And so the young man begins to, in earnest to try to overcome this sin. And after a short time, in a moment of weakness, he falls into this sin again. And this poor, unfortunate young man goes immediately back to confession in a real spirit of courage, seeks out that same crusty old priest. And he says, Father, please forgive me, I have fallen in a moment of weakness. And the priest says, no, you're not sorry. How could you be sorry? You've committed the same sin again. No, Father, please, you have to understand, I was, in a, I was weak. I've spent so long with battling this sin that I'm just now getting the courage to overcome it. Please forgive me. 
No, you're not really sorry. Please forgive me. No, you're not really sorry. And after much going back and forth, the priest finally gives in and absolves him, gives him a very severe penance and says, do not dare commit this sin again. And off the young man goes. And after a very long time this time, in a very brief moment of weakness, the poor young man falls into the same sin. And immediately he comes back to the confessional to this same priest. Bless me, Father, I have fallen again. I will not forgive you. But Father, you have to forgive me. I've tried so hard. It was a moment of weakness. I'm not malicious. I don't want this sin. No, I will not forgive you. And the priest actually gets out of the, out of the confessional and starts walking away. And this poor young man throws himself at the priest's feet. And he grabs hold of him and says, Please, Father, forgive me. I am truly sorry. No, I will not forgive you. Get your hands off me. Until finally both of them hear a very heavy sigh. And they look up toward the crucifix and the corpus, the body of Jesus, has come to life. And our Lord has detached his arm from the cross and he is holding it over the young man. And he says, if you won't forgive him, I will. Because I have died for this young man and it is I who have drawn him to this confessional. And then our Lord crosses, signs the cross over this young man and absolves him. This is the sign of our conversion. This is the sign of mercy. This is the sign of forgiveness. This is the sign that calls out to us. What more could our Lord do for us? How could our Lord love us any more than he has already loved us? And as we adore the cross on Good Friday, the Scola chants the beautiful improperia, the reproaches, in which our Lord asks us just that question. What more could I have done for you? He reminds us of everything that he has done and what we have done in return. Let me just quote to you. O my people, what have I done to thee? Or wherein have I afflicted thee? Answer me. Because I led thee out of the land of Egypt, thou hast prepared a cross for thy Savior. Because I led thee out through the desert forty years and fed thee with manna and brought thee into a land exceeding good, Thou hast prepared a cross for thy Savior. What more ought I to have done for thee What I what that I have not done? I planted thee indeed my most beautiful vineyard, and thou hast become exceeding bitter to me. For in my thirst thou gave me vinegar to drink, and with a lance thou hast pierced the side of thy Savior. For thy sake I scourged Egypt with its firstborn, and thou hast scourged me and delivered me up. O my people, what have I done to thee, or wherein have I afflicted thee? Answer me. I led thee out of Egypt, having drowned Pharaoh in the Red Sea, and thou hast delivered me to the chief priests. I opened the sea before thee, and thou with a spear hast opened my side. I went before thee in a pillar of cloud, and thou hast led me to the judgment hall of Pilate. I fed thee with manna in the desert, and thou hast beaten me with blows and scourges. I gave thee the water of salvation from the rock to drink, and thou hast given me gall and vinegar. For thy sake I struck the kings of the Canaanites, and thou hast struck my head with a reed. I gave thee a royal scepter, and thou hast given to me a head, uh, given to my head a crown of thorns. I exalted thee with great strength, and thou hast hanged me on the gibbet of the cross. O my people, what have I done to thee, or wherein have I afflicted thee? Answer me. After hearing this, after understanding what the cross speaks to us, 
The only question that we can truly ask ourselves is, is it not time for me to be truly converted? After all that our Lord has done for me, after all that our Lord has offered me, how could I not be converted? How could I possibly return to the old man? How could I not embrace this new life of grace and holiness? My dear faithful, our Lord once said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all things to myself. Our Lord has done that upon the cross. He calls us to a life of conversion. He has given us the example. He has given us the call. We must learn to die to the old man, to die to self and all self-will. We must turn to Christ. We must seek Christ. We must desire Christ. And our Lord will desire to come to us. He will come to us. Our Lord himself tells us very beautifully in sacred scripture, turn to me and I will turn to you. That's all it takes. If we turn to our Lord, he will turn to us. If we are truly converted, he will convert us. And if we truly seek our Lord in everything we do, then he will be truly present in everything we do. This is the conversion that he calls us to, a conversion of heart, a true metanoia, a true conversion to Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.